Psalm 116 is a psalm of salvation, of how God comes to people and draws them out of the destruction towards which they're headed. That, that process of conversion is also, um, or that process is described in Acts chapter 22, we're reading in terms of Paul's conversion. He retells the story of how he came to saving faith in Christ. I'm going to read the verses 1 through 21 of Acts chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So far. We now also read from Lord's Day 26. One of the texts mentioned in the footnotes in Lord's Day 26 comes from our reading which is Acts 22, verse 16. Lord's Day 26. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, 
Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Where has Christ promised that he will wash us with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated where Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we had the privilege of watching another baptism. Undoubtedly, the family witnessed it with great interest. Maybe some of the rest of us were feeling sentimental or emotional in some way, and others were probably a little bit bored. It's somewhat like leaving a restaurant. When you're on your way in, you tend to notice stuff like the lighting, where people sit, what they're eating, that kind of thing. But by the time that you've had your meal and you're on the way out, you don't really pay attention to that anymore. It becomes a lot less interesting. You've already had yours, so you're ready to go out. You're ready to move on. And it's possible when we witness baptism that some of us, maybe especially the young men in our midst, feel this way. We tend to undervalue baptism in general and our own baptism in particular. And yet when you see a child getting baptized, you have an opportunity to reflect on the meaning of your own baptism because your baptism remains relevant as long as you live. In the words of Belgian Confession, Article 34, baptism benefits us not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our whole life. You never outgrow the baptismal promises that were made to you. And this afternoon, we're going to see how that works. We'll see that baptism guarantees that I can depend on God's promises. And those are first, the promise of his certain judgment over sin. Second, the promise of his gracious aid in fighting sin. And finally, the promise of his final victory over sin. So the first thing we should consider is why is baptism necessary in the first place? And the catechism says that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. And that we are sinners is the consistent teaching of Scripture. 
Think of Romans 3, verse 23, for example. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It might be safe to say that one of the greatest hindrances in our personal spiritual growth is our inability to fully grasp the doctrine of original sin. Why is that? Why is it hard for us? Well, part of it might be because of the difference between ideals and reality. As human beings, we are by nature attracted to ideals. An ideal is how you think things are or how you believe they should be. Reality is how they really are. And all of us were idealists at some point. As children, children are, are by nature idealists. And you can see that because children, as, uh, when they're young and they're playing, they have a hard time telling the difference between their imagination and reality. They can spend hours playing in an imaginary world. And they transfer seamlessly from this imaginary world to the real world around them. And then back again. But by the time the children become adults, they outgrow that to some extent. But not completely. Think, for example, about the recent election campaign. You get all sorts of candidates out there that make all sorts of promises. Some of these promises are pure fantasy. They're not rooted in any kind of serious fiscal or economic reality. They don't interact with any of the facts that we see around us. If you've paid attention to the sort of things that people said during the recent election, you can probably give your own examples. Sometimes politicians get caught up in, these, in their own imaginations and they make these visionary, borderline messianic promises. But they can never live up to them. Why not? Because it's an ideal. And there is a difference between ideals and reality. And so this, this phenomenon that we tend to be carried away by ideals is not limited to politics. In fact, most people cherish some kind of ideals about themselves and human beings in general. If you talk to most people, most people will think of themselves that they are basically good. They're, they have what you could call a functional ethic. They have enough of a sense of right and wrong that they can function most of the time without getting into trouble with the law, without having their life go completely off the rails. And the canons of Dort reflect that as well. It says in chapter 3, 4, article 4, To be sure, there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. Those things are, are real. We cannot pretend that they don't exist in other people. They are there. People do generally retain some notions about God, about some natural things, about the difference between what is honorable and shameful. People do generally so, show some regard for virtue and for outward order. These things do exist, but the problem is that most people think that this is all there is. They are idealists. Instead of seeing things for what they are, these things that the canons of Dort mentions, instead of seeing them for what they are, the tragic remnants of the image of God, they see themselves instead as, as people who don't need a whole lot of improvement beyond the occasional inspirational speech. They're like a boy who has a stick and actually believes that he's holding a, a sword or a gun. Well, the canons of Dort go on to make a much more sober assessment of where we are actually at. 
Listen to the quote again. To be sure, there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. But so far is he from arriving at the saving knowledge of God and true conversion through this light of nature that he does not even use it properly in natural and civil matters. Rather, whatever this light may be, man wholly pollutes it in various ways and suppresses it by his wickedness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. Now, the very first proof of this pollution is our inability to grasp the doctrine of original sin. This is something you cannot outgrow, this original sin. You cannot outgrow it because you're born with it. As Belgian Confession Article 15 puts it, sin continually streams forth like water welling up from this woeful source. It already begins when you're small. Scripture says folly is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs 22:15. And as an adult, you never really outgrow your folly. You just become more refined in how you apply it. And every time that you think that you're finished with sin, it comes back to humble you. You think about how deep this actually runs in our lives. Think about the extent of sin. It's not just words. It's not just deeds. It's motivations. It's what's in your heart. Think about the words of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7 when he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now we know this is true. Your heart, in the biblical sense of the word, is the center of your motivation, your thinking, yourself, and all sorts of stuff comes out of the heart. Have you ever noticed, for example, how we can go from the most sublime spiritual contemplation to thoughts of outright wickedness in a matter of seconds. Maybe it happened to you while getting ready for church this morning. You were looking forward to church, but you were a little bit tired from the week. And then your spouse or children did or said something that that rubbed you the wrong way, and, and you responded with irritation, harsh, harshly to them, and they were hurt. And then instead of feeling repentant, you felt irritated. Well, where did the anger and irritation come from? It didn't come from them. They weren't the ones who put it into you. It came from within. And it can even happen to you when you're in church. You could be listening to a sermon like this one, and suddenly your mind gets distracted by an inappropriate thought. You play out a lustful scenario in your mind, or you replay a situation that happened this past week, or you go over a conversation in your mind that leaves you feeling angry and resentful. And your mind snaps back to reality and you try to focus on the sermon or on the prayer if that's where you're in. And all of this can happen in a matter of seconds. It's incredible how how we can do this. Maybe it's happening to some of you right now. Doesn't that just prove the point? That our, our wickedness comes from within. How much more proof do you want? Even if our conscience accuses us, that that bit of conscience that we sometimes have left, even if it accuses us, it's not necessarily shaped by Scripture. Consider, for instance, the biblical example of King Saul. 
in 1 Samuel 15. Saul, for most of his life, was what you would call a good man. He was, especially in the beginning, he was a good king. He tried to do the right thing. And yet, towards the end of his life, you start to see his inner life move towards the outside. It becomes more and more visible, and he slowly starts to unravel. And the place where you notice that most is actually, ironically, in his repentance. Especially in 1 Samuel 15, when he is rejected. Samuel calls him on his sin, and, and Saul responds. He says all the right things, but in the end, what matters to him most of all is that he does not lose face in public. He, he wants people to think that he is in the right. He says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. His motivations are not right. He's, he's penitent, sort of, but not really. But really, are we that different? Consider what happens when there is a withdrawal or an excommunication of a congregation member. Probably most office bearers would, would confirm that almost without exception, every person who withdraws or is excommunicated is convinced that he or she is not actually in the wrong. They might think that they've made a few mistakes, but they see themselves in ideal terms. They simply don't have a realistic view on themselves or the situation. But what you see there is simply a more extreme version of the rest of us. It's what lives in all of us. Again, in the words of the canons of Dort, man apart from God is filled with, quote, blindness, horrible darkness, futility and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness and stubbornness in his will and heart, and impurity in all his affections. Now, baptism testifies to all of these things. The reason why we need to be washed by the blood and spirit of Christ, as Lord's Day 26 puts it, is because our souls are by nature impure, and apart from that washing, we stand under God's judgment. That is also a promise of baptism. You see, we forget this often, but baptism does not only represent purification, it represents death. Sin deserves death. The prayer in the form makes that connection when it says, Almighty, eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with a flood, but in your great mercy saved and protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea, but led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground by which baptism was signified. You heard that prayer this morning. We prayed it together. And so these two waters, the water of judgment of the flood, the water of judgment over the, the forces of Egypt are connected to the water of judgment of baptism. It judges our sins. It says, this is what you deserve. Sin deserves death. And baptism reminds us of that. It points us to the blood and spirit of Christ for the purification of all sins, past and present, because those sins are real. And so it implies if we refuse to repent, we will undergo the judgment that baptism symbolizes. That's why your baptism always calls for a response on your part. If you don't respond, if you persist in sin, then that imagery of judgment will become real in your life. Think of the words of Nahum 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. Or these words from Psalm 21, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth. So the imagery of baptism reminds us God promised a certain judgment over sin. And you remember from this morning, God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises, including the promise of judgment over sin. You can count on that. You can rely on that 100%. But in that reliability is our salvation. We must look to Christ because he was judged for our sin. The only way I can ever hope to understand my need for baptism is by looking at the cross. It's only on reflecting on the death of Christ that I can hope to grow in maturity. In him we have forgiveness and redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The catechism reflects that in the second question and answer when it uses the phrase poured out. It says to be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in a sacrifice on the cross. That that pouring, that sacrificial language. It reminds us of the blood of the covenant that Moses threw over the people in Exodus 24, verse 8. It reminds us of the promise of Zechariah 13, looking forward to the death of Christ when he says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Fountain, that's expansive, generous, abundant imagery. It is his atoning blood that takes away my sin. In that sense, it is a washing. Baptism is a guarantee that you can depend on God's promise. He promises that he has certainly judged all your sin in Jesus Christ. That is just as much a promise as his promise to judge sin in the first place. It is just as much a promise. It is the same certainty and comprehensiveness that comes with it. You see how the promise of cleansing is tied to our sinfulness. And this is why we baptize infants, because they too need cleansing. That's why the first thing that Paul did was to acknowledge his need of cleansing. You think about that. By Jewish standards, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saul before his conversion, by Jewish standards, he was a perfect man. Now he reminds them of that. He's talking to the very people that used to be his colleagues there in Jerusalem. He's saying, you knew this. You knew I was a perfect man. And yet when he really came to know the Lord, he needed to be baptized. That's humbling. Isn't it humbling that the, the Pharisee who out-Phariseed all other Pharisees sees needed a purification greater than he could have possibly ever imagined? But is that not reassuring also for us? How were you assured of his promise? By baptism. Look at verse 16 of our reading. This was the one that gets quoted in the footnote as well in the Lord's Day. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now that is not to say, obviously, that um, Paul's sins were physically washed away by baptism. Only the blood and spirit of Christ cleanses us from all sins. But the promise of his certain judgment over our sin in Christ is so sure 
The promise of God's certain judgment over our sin and over Paul's sin in Christ is so sure that our text actually refers to baptism, actually refers to it as the washing away of sins. That's how strong, how certain that promise is. Baptism guarantees it. You can depend on God's promises. We've seen the promise of this certain judgment over sin. We've seen that a baptism warns us about our sin for that very reason. We've seen that that certainty is also reassuring because it means that when we believe in Christ, we can be sure that all of our sins were punished in Him. And therefore, it means that we can look forward. We have the promise of His gracious aid in fighting sin. And we're going to pay attention to that next Now, our reading this afternoon came from Acts chapter 22. This um, episode took place at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. His Jewish opponents formed a mob against him, and the Roman force intervenes, and uh, they rescue Paul, and he asks to speak to the crowd, and the centurion, the commander, lets him do so. And it's interesting to note that when Paul speaks to the crowd about his conversion, he highlights his background. He was a good Jew. He was the best of the best. He wanted to convey to them that he had not actually departed from the faith of his forefathers. His his, um, faith is not a departure from, from the sorts of things that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed in, the Jewish forefathers. It's it's building further on that. But the God of the Old Testament is a God of the New Testament as well. In Jesus, all those Old Testament prophecies had been fulfilled. He's conveying that to them. And then it's interesting to note that he highlights his baptism. Not just that he was baptized, but why he needed to be baptized. As a, as a man who was a good Jew. In verse 16, he says, rise and be baptized. That's what Ananias says to him. And Paul relates this to these people. Relays this to these people. He says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, you might wonder why. Why did he need to be baptized and have his sins, in a sense, um, so to speak, washed away? Because he already had faith. And if you've ever seen an adult being baptized, he or she already has faith. So why do you need the sign if you already have the thing that the sign signifies? Why do you need the baptism if you already have the forgiveness to which the baptism points? Now, it is true that Paul was already forgiven. Don't forget he waited for three days before Aeneas came. And again, the baptism itself does not wash away sin. So, it did confirm to Paul what Christ had done for him. Paul undoubtedly would have prayed for forgiveness. He would have, he would have called out to God in those three days. He would have had to completely rethink his whole life. So when the time comes for baptism, he has already repented. He's already been, in a sense, received forgiveness. But the baptism is a confirmation of what Christ has done for him. As John Calvin put it, and this is Calvin speaking, Paul had the testimony of the grace of God. His sins were already forgiven him. Therefore, he was not washed only by baptism, but he received the new confirmation of the grace which he had gotten. End quote. So it confirmed what Christ had done for him. And if he could count on it that God had judged all of his sins in Christ, he could also count on the promise 
of God's gracious aid in fighting sin in the present. Baptism is a sign that we belong to the Lord. If we belong to the Lord, we're also called to obey Him. We are, through baptism, called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. But we cannot live up to that obligation, and Paul could not either, which is reflected in Romans chapter 7 when he writes about his experiences as a believer. We're not finished with sin in our day-to-day life. Sin does not end after conversion, but we're strengthened in our fight against sin. Again, as Lord's Day 26 puts it, to be washed with the Spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. That's God's promise as well through baptism. Now, that that phrase, more and more dead to sin, is interesting here. It tells us we should expect progress in our life. Progress in little steps, to be sure. More and more dead. It's not like you kill it right away. You become more and more dead to sin. Progress in little steps, but it is real progress. God renews our inclinations, no matter how deep they run. He renews them over time. And that is so much better than making a good resolution. You know, sometimes we get caught up in particular sins and we resolve not to do it again. Maybe you've done that before. But every time you do that, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Why? Because good resolutions are your word. And your words will fail. But baptism is his word. His promise of gracious aid in fighting sin, and Jesus puts his life behind that. The life of the living God himself. And if you're then joined in faith to Christ, you share in the power of his resurrection. Then you have the promise of his gracious aid in fighting sin, guaranteed by his life. Now, there are parts of that aid that are instantaneous. That's a difference in Paul before and after his conversion. Don't forget that. That's a very drastic change. He didn't stop being Paul, but he did stop persecuting the church. He wasn't immediately sanctified, but he was drastically transformed. And God doesn't do half work, not in Paul's life and not in yours. If, if God transformed him so far... Of course, he will continue to aid in fighting the remaining sin in life. If he did that for Paul, he would do it for you too. Now, maybe you don't feel that the baptismal promises speak to you personally. But what are you saying when you say, well, these promises don't speak to me, my baptism doesn't speak to me? What are you saying? You're saying something about yourself, not the promises. The promises always speak. God always speaks. But do you believe him? You have the promise of his gracious aid in fighting sin, but what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? With his promises. We are through baptism called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. But that call never comes to us in a vacuum. You're part of a church community. Article 34 touches on that too of the Belgian Confession when it says, By baptism we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. God gives us promise of gracious aid in fighting, fighting sin to us as individuals, but it is in church's community together that we learn to work with that promise. It's here in church that you learn to work with it and to be entirely committed to him whose mark and eblem we bear. So we can depend on God's promises. We can depend on his promise of gracious aid in fighting sin, but that 
promise is fulfilled in community. So that means you need to talk to each other about your lives. You need to talk to each other. You need to pray for each other. You need to be honest with your elders when they come on a home visit. Don't just tell them what you think they want to hear. Tell them the way it really is. Not everybody does that. Our baptism reminds us to continue gathering together, not just to be encouraged, but to encourage others as well. And in that encouragement, he also promises us his final victory over sin. And we'll look at that last. All Christians become discouraged at some point. We touched on that this morning as well. What do you do when you're discouraged? Keep holding on to the promise of baptism. Through baptism, the Holy Spirit reminds us that he imparts, as a form puts it, what we have in Christ namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives, till, listen carefully, we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect and life eternal. Without blemish. Can you imagine what that would be like without any of the sin that still wells up within us, that still clings to us, that still pollutes us? Imagine being without blemish. When you live with that end in mind, that tends to change the way that you look at life now. Really, a baptism properly understood completely changes your perspective on this life. You think about that. There will be a time when you will be presented without blemish. You saw a baby this morning, and when you look at a baby like that, it appears to be physically without blemish. Just as that baby seems physically unblemished and perfect when it is presented here for baptism, so one day you will be presented before God without any spiritual blemish. You may see all kinds of shortcomings. You may consider yourself to be inadequate in many ways. But if you are a child of God, one day you will be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Can you imagine what that would be like to be without blemish? And your baptism is the promise of God's final victory over sin in your life because this is about him, this is not about you. And you may not always see that clearly now, but consider what the Lord has done. Look back on your life so far. Consider what the Lord has done. Consider what he does today. In the words of Article 34 of the Belgian Confession, he washes purges and cleanses our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renews our hearts and fills them with all comfort, gives us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothes us with a new nature, and takes away the old nature with all its works. So you're growing in grace every day, every day, and one day you will be perfected. You can depend on God's promises, the promise of his certain judgment over sin, The promise of his gracious aid in fighting sin and the ultimate promise of his final victory over sin. So it's true. Baptism benefits us not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our whole life. May that be the case for us as well. May we become more and more aware of the power of God's promises as we mature in our faith. And may we never outgrow our baptism. Amen.